Across the last two years, there have been dozens of positive media articles about the appeal of the UK holiday property let sector from an investment perspective. As one delves into some of the detail in these articles, there's a common thread about the HMRC tax rules and the suggestion that they are very positive for this particular sector, especially when compared to the residential buy-to-let arena, where there have been many adjustments and reductions in the tax benefits. For this particular ARIA Resorts podcast, I wanted to strip away some of the myths and the confusion around this complex area and get into the appropriate detail and the truth for a layperson to be able to make sense of and to understand this subject. And so I made contact and agreed to talk on the telephone with one of the UK's leading experts in this particular niche. Well, I have the great pleasure this morning to be joined on the line by Andrew Stanley of Stanley Tax Associates. First of all, Andrew, welcome. Uh, Thank you very much, David. Obviously, it will be very useful before we get into the detail of the taxation scenario with regard to furnished holiday property lets to understand a little bit more about yourself and, and your background. So give us your backstory, please, Andrew. I try and keep it uh, as short as possible. Uh, as you mentioned, David, I'm the Managing Director of Stanley Tax Associates, or, or S-Tax, as we tend to, to trade as. We are now, after running for the best part of 10 years, one of the largest capital allowance advisors in the country. A national firm of tax advisors such as myself, certified chartered accountants and chartered surveyors. And we are positioned to give advice predominantly in just one area of tax, that being capital allowance claims on both commercial buildings, but also furnished holiday lets. Now, this is the subject that we're going to delve into a lot of detail around on our podcast today. As I'm sure you will know, because it's your business, Andrew, that the media, Mm -hmm. let's call it the specialist media, many of the broadsheets, investment magazines, property magazines, there's been an avalanche of positive news articles about the asset class of furnished holiday property lets. But why generally do you feel that is? Well, there's a whole host of macroeconomic factors, geopolitical events and so on, uh, even maybe say global warming, making the summers here warmer and, and, and longer to the driving people towards that. We're, we're concerned with the tax aspects and there are a huge amount of tax benefits when you shift from um, buy to letting into uh, short-term letting. And, and one of the, I think, one of the drivers for investors has been the, the loss of the deductibility of the bulk of their mortgage interest. And, of course, that hasn't had any impact on furnished holiday leads. So that when you're investing in these sorts of properties, you can still you know, retain that full deductibility rather than potentially paying tax on turnover or, or on a buy-to-let. Of course, the actual commercial rationale behind a furnished holiday let is much more location location even than um that than a buy to let oh you have to have the right property in the right place to get the demand to, to make it viable but if you have then there are certainly a whole myriad of tax positives compared to your more standard investing yeah and anyone listening to this interview andrew can quite easily go away and find a variety of different reports about the location and the appealing locations and for example barclays did a a staycation report recently, which is excellent, talks about location. But already in this short interview, you've mentioned the term furnished holiday let. Is there a specific type of accommodation that qualifies as a furnished holiday let? And what does the accommodation need to provide to qualify? Well, furnished holiday let is a tax term, broken, uh, often shortened to the acronym FHL. And it covers a whole host of different types of activities linked to short letting of residential property. So it's a bit of a misnomer in that it doesn't necessarily have to be holiday-related. Uh, we've actually done a huge number of furnished holiday lets in Croydon, 
I don't think anybody's actually going on holiday there, but they tend to be more for key workers, members of the police and so forth who are wanting short-let property rather than, say, holiday-let. So it's actually defined by quite a a tight criteria in in tax legislation. So the, the main ones relate to occupancy. So when you have uh, an FHL, to be classified as an FHL for tax purposes, it has to be available for short lettings, and a short let is 31 days or less, has to be available for these types of lettings for at least 210 days in the year. Okay, so that eliminates the ability to put somebody in there on a six-month contract or even live in it yourself for six months. So broadly speaking, it needs to be available for most of the year. It then actually needs to be let for half of this time as a minimum, so at least for 105 days of periods never exceeding 31 days. And it does also need to be furnished. They're the main criteria. If you hit those three criterion, then your property is a furnished holiday let. It's not that there, there's no element of choice, and it's something that we see kind of widely held misconception out there, and that you can choose to be a furnished holiday let. If you hit that criteria, you are a furnished holiday let rather than, say, a normal, ordinary property business. And that changes mainly to the positive, but there are a few negatives on a tax perspective that need to be, need to be factored in. Already in listening to you, Andrew, it makes perfect sense to me why we chose to have this interview with you, but also why people actually need to come to you to get the correct advice. Because one thing I've learned today is that you actually, if you're meeting certain criteria and you are a furnished holiday property let, whether you potentially may not understand that or not. Now, for the benefit of those people who are listening to this interview, and I'm sure there are many kind of residential buy-to-let landlords out there that will find themselves listening to this, I want to be explicitly clear. So how is a furnished holiday property let taxed differently to a residential property let? The first, most striking difference, is that it goes on a different page in your personal tax return. There is a page there for furnished holiday letting. Uh, and it's treated as a separate sub-business within your property business. And it's treated much more similarly to, say, a trade, you know, a self-employed business, than it is to a passive investment activity. So on the positive, from a capital gains perspective, if you hit the entrepreneur's relief qualifying periods of two years, you would end up paying 10% capital gains rather than, say, 28% potentially on sale. You're also then opening up the possibility of claiming capital allowances on not only all the loose items in the business, so you can write off the cost of the, you know, the furniture, the TV, and so forth, but also on the fixtures in the property as well, which is really where we step in because their value is contained within the purchase price of the building. And you are perfectly within your rights, empowered by Section 562 of the Capital Allowances Act 2001, to claim a percentage of your purchase price to compensate you for the fact that these fixtures, things like the electrics, plumbing, sanitary and so on, are going to dilapidate over time and eventually need a substantial upgrade at some point in the future. And identifying how much of a purchase price you can claim is where you know, specialists like us steps in, because your acquisition cost is often completely disjoint from the sum of the value of the items. So we have to go in, we calculate the value ratio, if you like, between the items you can and can't claim, and we multiply this back into what you spent. So the long and short of that, to, 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 to obviously not to lose half of our listeners by going into too much detail, is that for your average freehold furniture or the LED, you'd expect about 25% of the purchase price to be available in tax relief. Which is for any investors listening to this, it's an incredibly attractive hook, isn't it, Andrew? And is that what your experiences of the people that you advise 
is that proving to be a majorly attractive hook? It, it is, yeah. We work not only with investors, but also with quite a few developers, uh, such, such as you guys at, at Aria, because it, it's a little bit of maths for everybody here, and apologies in advance, but if you buy a furniture or they let that makes 5% rental profits per annum, and we go in and make a 25% capital allowance claim, that means your rental profits are tax-free for the first five years, which, of course, for higher rate or additional rate taxpayers, pretty much doubled the rate of return over that period. And I would stress, this is a tax relief that you are fully entitled to claim. It's on a statutory basis, following guidance laid down by the VOA and HMRC. It's not straightforward, and it's both quantity surveying and tax, but it's not some form of interesting reinterpretation of how the rules work. It's a relief that you're fully entitled to claim. There are a handful of other changes that need to be borne in mind as well. On the negative side, you do lose the ability to, uh, to loss relieve your FHL profits against your other property business. So if you've got, say, an FHL that unfortunately goes, goes, doesn't go quite as well as you hoped, you can't take those losses and offset it against rental profits on, say, some buy-to-lets or commercial building. So it does segregate it from the rest of your tax affairs, but as long as, obviously, that property is profitable, which is where yeah, David and his team steps in, then, then there are significant tax benefits over your standard buy-to-letting. You made a couple of points there which I think are important to draw out and emphasise, Andrew. One of them is the fact that this is not some sort of tax loophole, as is often we hear of in the investment world. You know, people can very easily go away and Google HMRC, furnished holder property lets, and right at the top of Google, they will find the criteria that you're now referring to. So I think for the benefit of people listening that are thinking, you know, is this some sort of tax loophole? No, it's not. It's actually HMRC legislation with clear clear criteria set around it how many of the people that come and see you andrew are aware that this is actually robust legitimate taxation from hmrc as opposed to some loophole that some creative tax advisor or accountant has actually made up uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag i mean the press has done a great job of vilifying anything to do with tax rightly or wrongly i'm not going to get into the ethics behind it i mean there was a lot of aggressive avoidance and so on that yeah thankfully has been stamped out now that being said, there are elements of the tax statute and the RR is empowered by the Capital Allowances Act that was rewritten in 2001. And our job is the same as a HMIC inspector's job in that we are here to make certain our clients are paying the correct amount of tax. And if there's a relief that you're entitled to claim on money that you have already or are going to spend, it's a bit balmy not to claim it. It's a bit like waiving your personal allowance on income tax just to be on, on the safe side. So some people do come through the door that we, when we first speak to them, they are concerned that, you know, that they've been seeing a lot of stories in the press about people running money for offshore companies and all sorts of funny activities. Uh, it's very much a different kettle of fish from that. Uh, it is quite a technical area. I mean, the, it's kind of fortunately or unfortunately, fortunately from us, we wouldn't have a business otherwise, but unfortunately from the public's perspective, tax is not simple. There are always nuances and, and exceptions to every bit of legislation. Uh, and to, to successfully navigate that to get the maximum outcome is, is why you know, our entire industry exists in, in the first place. So, yeah, you get a bit of a mixed bag. And it depends on how, how much, how sophisticated our, our clients are. Uh, how experienced they are with some tax. Some people are making their first investment outside of the main home. And, of course, they're going to have a lot more questions than somebody who's buying their 15th furnished hall they let. So it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. We're always happy to sit down and explain in as much or sometimes as little detail as our, as our clients want. And charging only 
on a performance basis at the end, the people we work with have peace of mind knowing that there isn't you know, an invisible clock running in the background you know, racking up our fees every time they ask another question. That's useful to know. I mean, one of the things I'm really a big fan of, Andrew, is trying to sort of define and I suppose break down for the layperson a level of understanding. So let's go a little bit deeper into what capital allowances are there for items such as furniture and fixtures. So what I'm saying is where does that start and end? What is classed as something that is allowable in that arena versus what is absolutely not? Well, there are a whole host of items that we know are and a whole host of items we know aren't. And due to the case law over the years defining what or isn't plant, there are a whole lot of items in the middle, which dependable on use and the, the, the industry and the micro-location in the property could be or, or may not be eligible. So the, the main value is in the utility infrastructure in the property. So we're talking things like the electrics, plumbing, heating, your air conditioning in a larger building, You've got the sanitary wear, uh, fitted furniture like the kitchen, you have white goods which may be integrated, so they might be fixtures under our umbrella, they might be loose if they're just, you know, just literally plugged in. And in, in the furniture they let, because the, the, the ambiance of the place is mission critical, I, by looking nice people want to stay, justifies the, the, the rates, and of course they come back and it's repeat business. Then a lot of the finishes are, are available as well. So things such as, you know, fitted carpets, potentially some of the, the, the door furniture, you know, uh, pictures screwed to the wall and so forth. Uh, so there's quite a wide range of items. And I would stress that almost every single business in the country is claiming capital allowances of some format because it's, it's the only way in the UK tax system that businesses get relief for capital expenditures. Let me explain that a bit further. If you run a, 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 a trade, let's say you're, you're, you have a firm of, of, of plumbers, and you've got 10 guys going around in vans doing, doing plumbing work. And every time you buy a new van, that doesn't go for your profit and loss. That value goes on your balance sheet and therefore doesn't reduce your taxable profits at all. In some ways, you pay tax on the money you spent on the van. However, because it's a piece of plant and machinery used within your business, you can claim capital allowances on it to write the value off against your taxable profits, therefore reducing the amount you pay tax on by the value of the van. So it's exactly the same tax relief at work here. And the reason why the door opens for it is because when you move from being a passive buy-to-let investor into furnished holiday lettings, you're treated much more like a trade than you are a simple uh, investment business. Because to be honest, there's a lot more activity, isn't there, David? You're involved with you know, the cleaning, a lot more maintenance, you have repeat bookings and so forth. It's, it's a lot more hands-on than simply signing a one-year short tenancy agreement and, and then speaking to the tenants hopefully 11 and a half months later to see if they're going to stay or not. So, yeah, it, it's something that maybe there should be more awareness out there of the ability to claim fixtures. And most of, the, quite, most of our work revolves around commercial buildings of one form or another because they tend to be quite a bit larger than, than furnished or they let. But we are seeing a huge growth in this area and, and it's a massive benefit for investors to be able to tap into this value. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, one of the things I would say is that uh, in my experience, there is definitely a, a relatively low level of understanding of the fact that this taxation exists to the degree that it does. Uh, but listening to you, Andrew, what is immediately apparent to me is that people really do need to take advice from a firm like yours, because it's clear that the subject can be quite complex. And the benefits of talking to you are obviously going to be very easily cost-justified. I want to drill deeper, if I may, into some of the occupancy conditions that you touched on earlier. So just remind us what they are 
Are there a minimum or maximum number of days that the property would have to be let or at least be available to let? I know you talked about that earlier on, but I just want to make sure that doesn't get lost in the sea of all this great information you provided. <laughs> yeah, so um, fortunately, the two main numbers are what, what one is, is twice the other one. So the, the property actually has to be let for at least 105 days of, of short lets. So that's periods never going over 31 days. So you can have some longer lets in there, periods of 40 days, 50 days, but they won't count towards your target of at least 105 in the year. Yeah. So that, that's the actual letting condition. It needs to be available for these sorts of lets. So listed on, you know, Airbnb or with the, you know, the, um, the booking guys at Ariel or, or wherever it might be, but actually available to be let for 210 days. So double the 105. So they're the two main targets you need to hit. So, yeah, so the first one is the number of days it actually needs to be let, and the second one is the number of days it needs to be available to be let. Exactly, yes. So what are the consequences, Andrew, if this number is not achieved in a typical year, perhaps due to bad weather or extremely low bookings? What happens then? Well, there's a couple of things you can do. Um, if you have a portfolio of furnished holiday lets, you can make an averaging election to smooth out, if you like, good performance with that. So if you've got another building that's far exceeded the uh, the requirement, you can average out between the two to make all of them qualifying. If you only have the one or averaging wouldn't work, then you can actually make what's called a period of grace election as long as the property had already qualified as a furnished holiday let in the past. And this effectively is a get-out-of-jail-free card for that year, and you can even use it for a second year. If you get to the third year and it's still not in the criteria, well, it stops being a furnished holiday let, and from that point forward, it's taxed as a buy-to-let. So you lose a lot of the tax benefits you may have seen so far. Okay. Now, I know you may have touched on this earlier. Well, you did, in fact, touch on this earlier. But if a person owns more than one furnished holiday let and they achieve all the letting conditions apart from one, is there any leeway to help owners in these circumstances? So that's really someone with a portfolio. I mean, you mentioned earlier that about the you know the cross referencing of one and another. Yeah. So effectively, you you can look at the cumulative requirements and average out across the portfolio. So if you have three uh, properties, your letting requirement across all three is three times the one hundred and five, so three hundred and fifteen. So it, you can look to average, say, two good performing properties to cover the non-performance in a third. So as long as you hit it across a number of them, then, then you can, you have to make, obviously, you have to form HMRC, this is what you're doing, but you can do that to cover short periods of non-performance. Okay. And one of the questions we get asked constantly at ARIA by investors who are looking into the guaranteed term that we offer on three and five years, the question is from them, you know, what happens outside of that term? What level of bookings do I need to do to break even the moment we apart from sending them in your direction to quantify the tax benefits we don't get into the tax scenario but let's say for those people who are listening that find themselves with a furnished holiday property let that let's say makes a loss i.e they're not making enough bookings to cover the, their operating costs what are the taxation options and considerations for those sorts of people well this is one of the big negatives of furnished holiday lets and things in in, in tax are always balanced to some degree. Becoming a furnished holiday let, you open up the door to a whole host of extra tax reliefs you can't claim as a buy-to-let investor, but on the negative side, you lose the ability to sideways loss relief your furnished holiday let against other property assets or other sources of income. So if you like this, if your furnished holiday letting business is segregated, you could use those losses against 
future profits on that building, or you could use them in that year against profits on other furnished holiday lets in the UK. Um, but what you can't do is take a loss on your furnished holiday lets and say put it against a profit on a buy to let salaried income or, or, or anything else. So that's the one, the one kind of big negative of going from one to the other. So there are some scenarios, I'm sure, Andrew, where people do find themselves owning a property that qualifies as a furnished holiday property let, and then for whatever reason, the property fails to meet the criteria, so it's no longer an FHL. What process does that person need to go through? and What reporting requirements do they have to HMRC? What's involved in, in reporting that, as it were? Well, it's all done through self-assessment. So you would start to report your rental profits through the ordinary property business section of the tax return rather than the furnished holiday letting page. Um, any assets that you've claimed relief on in the past that are in still in the business, you're going to need to make an adjustment because they're now going from a qualifying to non-qualifying. There are things that can be done at that point to juggle the asset around, transfer between husband and wife and so on to, to try and close off a bit of that history. But there's going to be a bit of negative adjustment there as well. So from from our perspective, going in and doing the survey work and so on, you would want to know you've got a good few years of furnished holiday letting in front of you before incurring the cost of, of doing that. So it's not an easy tax journey to make, but there are things that can be done to to make it a bit smoother. But again, that, that, that sort of transition is really where you need professional advice from not only from us on a capital out perspective, but of course, you know, a good general practice accountant as well filing filing your returns. Yeah, so one of the things that ARIA does, Andrew, is we work with independent financial advisors that are FCA regulated. So wherever there's a requirement from someone to receive financial advice, ARIA doesn't give it. It points someone in the direction of their own IFA or, uh, or, or one that we know are briefed on how the ARIA proposition works. Just from your perspective here as an accountant, I mean, what do you feel about the ARIA investment proposition uh, as far as a company that are prepared to give someone a guaranteed return of 7% for three or five years. What is your view on that compared to what else is out there in the marketplace? Uh, well, a couple of uh, points. Firstly, I'm a qualified tax advisor. I should sit on the Charter Institute of Taxes, Property Taxes Technical Committee, where we have desperate need of a catchy acronym. We help advise people like the Treasury and HMRC and so on on, on various different tax changes. I'm there for, for capital allowances. So I'm not an accountant. We're a different breed in, in tax. Uh, unfortunately, David, I can't really make comment on the the commercial rationale of buying it or, or not. We're here to advise on tax. There are there's a whole range of different products out there, given what you can get on most their prime real estate or returns on say cash balances or bonds at the moment. Seven percent sounds very attractive. But as I said, we can't really pass comment much more beyond that, David. It's a bit outside yeah. of our remit. Yeah, no, I guess where I was going is, you know, we talked earlier on about the importance of location and then in one of your last answers you talked about the importance of being sure or having a level of confidence that the property you're going to work with has the potential to deliver the returns versus, mm. you know, an uncertain scenario. So obviously one of the things ARIA is offering is some certainty for three or five years based on the level of return. And it was that really that I was looking to get your feel for, the difference between certainty and uncertainty of, of kind of doing it yourself and renting it out yourself via the likes of Airbnb, Booking.com, late rooms and things of that nature. Well, it's a risk-reward balance, isn't it? I mean, doing it yourself, you might get higher returns, but you also might not. And it depends on what your own personal attitude is, is to risk. Walking into a guaranteed scenario of a number of years backed by a very large and well-funded entity 
is, of course, a lower risk proposition than rolling the dice yourself. But often with investment, it's horses for courses, isn't it? Different absolutely. people will be attracted by, by different things. Yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, IFAs would always say that an investment is completely unique to a person's per- personal <laughs> financial circumstances. So uh, thank you for sharing your, your views on that. I feel like I have to put the disclaimer in the saying tax associates does not give investment advice <laughs> in any way. Right. Nothing in this, in this podcast should be construed to, uh, to be doing so. We're here Quite. to give tax advice. Quite right, Andrew. And likewise, no one from ARIA actually gives investment advice. <laughs> we essentially are. We are authorised to provide factual information about the investment, not advice. Yep. If anybody needs advice, they go to a qualified independent financial advisor or whoever else they deem is needed to help them make a decision around an investment. So some yep. people might be listening to this who already own their own furnished holiday property in another country. Can people that are planning to invest additionally in a furnished holiday let in the UK combine their UK income with their furnished holiday property income they may have overseas. Is that mm-hmm. something that's possible? Well, there's, there's, there's positives and negatives in the answer to that. Unfortunately, no. Your UK and overseas are separated again. So the two become different entities from a tax perspective. Um, but the positive point to pick up on there is that if people have bought furnished holiday lets in the past, either here in the UK or, or elsewhere in, in the world, it would be the EEA for an FHL, then there's actually no statutory time limit on how far back in time we can look to make a claim against their acquisition costs, subject to a few caveats related to if you bought an FHL from somebody who was already FHLing it recently. This means if you bought the building 10 years ago, David, we could look back against that acquisition cost and claim the tax relief in the more recent couple of years, which would trigger a tax rebate on tax you paid last year. We couldn't go back 10 years and reopen that tax return. You, you probably wouldn't want to. But if we, I mean, it often happens. We speak to somebody about a current acquisition. We advise them through the purchase process and to conduct the survey work. And of course, the next question is, have you been buying these sorts of buildings before? And have they been acquiring various different types of real estate for the last 10, 15 years? We can go back over all of that to try and get as much historical relief um, as, as possible. But the one caveat I would add to that is that we are driven by cost, not value. So if the building's been in the family since the early 20th century, for example, which we had recently with a casino, then it's that acquisition cost from 1907, five and six in old money that we're looking at, not the current value of um, a million pounds or whatever it might be. So there is definitely scope to work on overseas property, but unfortunately there isn't that ability to share losses and profits between the two. Okay, thank you for clarifying that, Andrew. I think to try and wrap this up and probably help it make sense to people who are listening, I'm sure there have been people hurriedly writing down with their pen and paper some of the points, and uh, we'll come to your contact details afterwards so people know how to make direct contact with you if they want your your service. But Mm -hmm. would it be possible for you to walk us through what I would call a a sensitized real-life example. So obviously a real case study, a real example, but with the names of the owner taken away, where you can actually walk us through the purchase price and what you were able to do with that within the criteria that the HMRC set. Uh, yeah, well, we've, we've also done a lot of work in, in your field, some of it on some of your holiday parks already. There's one particular park, I won't name it by name, in, in the Isle of Wight. We've, we've done a number of claims in, for this year. The process initially started with us engaging with the uh, the team there at the large park home operator. I think we, we don't need to, uh, to, to name them, to drill into the history of the building, to look back all the way to 1996 to see when it was built, what's happened to it since, what have previous owners done, what claims have been made. We went through that process, and that took us quite a few months from start to finish and verified that acquirers of these units could make a full, unrestricted claim. We then 
sent our surveyors to site and we actually batch surveyed 15 park homes in, in, in one go. We uh, then do quite a bit of calculation and analysis here in the office. So my survey team breaks down their site data to give a full itemized account of the rebuild costs of the structure in question. So for these particular units, I mean, that was a, a fair what, about four or 500 lines on an Excel spreadsheet, itemizing everything down to the type and make of door handles. My tax team then spent about a week analyzing this data, separating out the items that we can claim. So these are things, as we mentioned before, like the electrics, the plumbing, there were uh, jacuzzis in these, which was knocked up the claim quite a bit as well, the fitted furniture, the sanitary wear, some of the finishes and so on. So we separate those items out from the bulk of the structural costs, which we then calculate the ratio between them, the structure, and the land. And for these particular units, they were coming in at a low 30%. So actually, 33%, I think, was the highest. Now, they were being purchased for 165000 at the time. So we were finding between fifty to £55,000 on each unit, which at the moment, because you've got something called the annual investment allowance, most investors can just write off straight away. So those units were being left, I think, on 7% rental yields. So they're seeing 11550 per month. So if no mortgage or anything along those lines, you're looking then at the first 4.8 years rental returns being tax-free. Of course, if they're geared, the profits per year will go down and the allowances will last longer, maybe eight, nine years worth of tax-free profits. And those are the sorts of figures we've seen on uh, homes on exactly these sorts of investments that we've worked on this year. Wow. Well, I mean, that's just a very, very powerful final example. So thank you for that, Andrew. I'm really grateful for the fact you've taken the time to talk to me. We could go on forever. It is obviously a very detailed and complex subject. And our stance on this is very much to pass people on to the experts. So anybody who's listening to this that's either interested in ARIA or not, or are looking at their own holiday property investment somewhere else in the UK, and they've found this podcast useful, how can they actually make direct contact with your organization? Well, I think the, the first step would be to either email in or to call our office. I would speak to myself, uh, my name is obviously Andrew Stanley, uh, to, to reiterate from the beginning, or to my communications manager, Harry Gilbert. Our head office number is 0207-147-9940, or you could email through to us either at andrew at staxuk.com, that's Sierra Tango Alpha X-Ray Uniform Kilo.com, or harry at staxuk.com. Or, if you like, you can email to both of us at the same time, and we can race to, re- to respond to you. In that instance, it, it, we have a you know, very informal chat on the phone, maybe meet, you know, run through the options, expand things in as much or as, as little detail as, 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 our, as you wish, and lay out the options going forward. So if it's something you want to take forward, we'll then formalise engagements and paperwork and, and pick up tools. Andrew, it's been absolutely insightful to speak to you. I'm really grateful for your time. Fascinating subject and uh, sort of very comforting to speak to someone who really does know their subject matter as well as you. Thank you for your time today. No, thanks. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk. Thanks, David. Cheers. Take care.